Welcome to This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for 25 years. I'm a life coach, author, and speaker. I also work full-time as a process analyst in the power industry. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jesse Tuggy, and I've had diabetes for nine years. I love hiking and painting. I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after I get my degree in college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my life and my future, to learn everything I can about type 1 diabetes. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 66 of This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Today, we're talking about the importance of time and range and A1C. And I have the win this week. And my win is actually staying on my food plan all week. So that was fun. I only ate what I decided 24 hours in advance, even when I felt the urge to maybe double a batch of chaffles here or have some extra keto Oreos there. But I stayed on my plan and that's my win this week. Jesse, what's your fail? What's a chaffle? <laughs> chaffle is a cheese waffle. It's low carb, although there are some versions of chaffles that don't involve cheese. They've just kind of become the word for a low carb waffle. Oh, and okay. Yeah. Serious Keto on YouTube. That's a YouTube channel. He has a whole bunch of different chaffle recipes that he's tested out. And one of them is Oreo chaffles. Wow. I'm planning to make next week when my mom and sister are visiting. Huh. Okay. I didn't expect that. That's pretty cool. Yep. <laughs> anyway, okay. what's your fail? So yesterday was Halloween. So I had, fr- so this is COVID. So not, there is no trick or treaters, which made me very sad, but you know, I'll get over that. But I stayed up very late with my friends and I did not check before they came over how much insulin I had in my pump which made quite a hassle for me when I was trying to go to bed and I had to all of a sudden change out my reservoir and my Mio because I didn't have enough insulin to get through the night. And I kind of made a mess of insulin all over my comforter because I realized... So one of the reservoirs, the seal broke. So I think the needle broke inside. So it wasn't like it was cracked and there was insulin squirting out places that it shouldn't be. So... I set everything down. I was just like, oh, that was so disgusting because I had like squirted insulin all over my wall. So I got a paper towel, napkin, I cleaned that up. And then I threw that old stuff away and I got a new vial of insulin and a new reservoir. And then I went to bed after I put on my site because I was so tired and I was very ready to go to sleep. Yeah. That that reminds me of actually a couple of weeks ago when I was changing my set. I So with with the Tandem T-Slim sites, you have a separate syringe like stem and then you twist on the needle and then you pull the cap off the needle. Well, on the needle, there's supposed to be this little white like bead at the base of the needle so that it's like sealed in. That's like the the seal point. And a couple of weeks ago, I was drawing up insulin into my reservoir and or into the stem of the syringe and found that it was pulling more air in than insulin and the insulin was leaking out of the out of the needle. And that little bead wasn't there. So I actually, this was actually on a trip too. So I used a previous needle top that I had had. And it was convenient because I was on the trip and I could just pull the previous needle head out and then just use that one. But it was 
yeah, insulin all over the place. It's totally great. We normally have diabetes hacks, but we're also going to start kind of feathering in some diabetes tips. And Jesse has a diabetes tip this week. Yes. And I thought this would be rather important to everybody that plays a sport or has a child that plays a sport because I was talking to one of my mom's friends who is a principal for a school and he was very uneducated about diabetes. I That's not the correct word. He's a very smart person, but he w- just wasn't as knowledgeable of diabetes and like the culture of it and certain procedures when I started talking to him. So I asked him, I was like, what do you normally do if a child passes out and they have diabetes? He's like, well, I usually, I haven't had it happen, but I would think to assume to give them sugar. And that instantly set off red alarms for me because I realized that that's the common belief that when a child passes out, a coach should be giving them sugar or like squirting frosting down their throat or something like that. Which is not true because if like, say a child gets concussed or gets their head hit, you're not going to pour sugar down their throat because they're concussed. Same thing if they pass out because they're high or because maybe they're dehydrated, but their blood sugar is super high or million things, other things like that. So definitely a big tip to my the parent listeners out here is that If your child is playing a sport or an unsupervised activity where they could be getting hurt or could be going low, type up a diabetic plan for your child to have in their backpack. Inform the coaches on where it will be and what it looks like and what to do if your child isn't necessarily doing okay or is passed out somehow. So my mom had a diabetic procedure plan. It was a little packet, about three pages thick about what to do if I passed out, what everything looks like. We had pictures, what snacks I can have, this, that, and the other thing. And it really put my coaches at ease too because they didn't have to remember a million other things. So there wasn't a big stigma around me playing sports or having to worry about me. Very good. And that kind of actually ties in a little bit to the topic of this episode, which is A1C and time and range. If kids are passing out because of low blood sugar or high blood sugar, they are probably not having good time and range. (laughs) So today we are discussing the importance of A1C and time and range. And first we'll talk about what they both are and what they mean, their origins, and why they're an important piece of diabetes management. And there are a few web-based A1C calculators out there, which we'll link to in the show notes. All right. So what is A1C? A1C also called HbA1c or HgA1c is an average measurement of blood sugar levels over the last three months. It actually measures the amount of hemoglobin in the blood that has glucose attached to it. The more glucose on the blood cell, the higher the A1c and the higher your average blood sugar. A1c is also a test for diabetes or prediabetes when you're in a middle-aged area. So what does A1C mean? It's a measuring stick of how good your average blood sugar is, but it doesn't take into account frequent lows paired with frequent highs. Sometimes a good A1C can mask frequent highs and lows if you don't always know your time and range. Non-diabetics have A1Cs about below 5.7%. Technically, 5.7% is where your doctor will flag a patient for prediabetes. The upper range for prediabetes is 6.4. If your A1C is 
5% or higher, that indicates that you're, you're going to be diabetic. So how is A1C measured? It's measured by a finger stick in the doctor's office. So they just prick your finger and take some blood out. And that's if your doctor has a small A1C machine. And if they don't, you might have to get a blood draw and have it sent to the lab. I actually had an A1C test one time when I was in the hospital where they wanted to actually draw it out of my arm. And I was like, are you kidding me? Take it from my fingers. And they had to squeeze so much blood out of my fingers because they didn't have a machine good enough to actually just use a small little drop of blood. So pro tip, don't go to a place that makes you draw blood for, for A1C. That was fun. My annual blood labs from my doctor will include an A1C measurement just because it's part of the standard panel. But normally it is just a finger stick in my endo's office four times a year. It's pretty routine for a type 1 diabetic. It's measured in terms of percentage. And each percentage roughly equates to a blood sugar level in either MGDL, which is milligrams of glucose per deciliter of blood, or if you're in a metric country, which the US is not, it's going to be in millimoles per liter. While we'll include a table in the show notes, the rough equivalents of some A1C numbers are 5% is about 97 MGDL, which is 5.4 millimoles. And this is actually my A1C as of September 2020. 5.7, which is the threshold for prediabetes, is 117 MGDL, which is 6.5 millimoles. 6.5% A1C is about 140 MGDL and 7.8 millimoles. 7.2% A1C is about 160 MGDL and 8.9 millimoles. And then 8% is 183 MGDL and 10.2 millimoles. All of these values are calculated using the American Diabetes Association's EAG, which stands for Estimated Average Glucose, to A1C Conversion Calculator, which you'll find in the show notes. And this is the one that I actually use the most often. Obviously, the higher the A1C, the higher the average blood sugar level. Now, what I have a problem with is endocrinologists and doctors saying that an A1C in the sevens is something to like aim for, that it's good. And that means you're over 150 most of the time and permanent damage happens when your blood sugars go over 140. This is why my high line is 140. I think type ones shoot to be under six and a half percent all of the time if they can, as long as it's paired with good time and range. And I mean, clearly I have opinions. If normal non-diabetics have A1Cs below 5.7, then that's where we should try to be too. And at the same time, I do understand that getting that low is hard for many diabetics, especially if they're in their teen years. And I sympathize, but this is my opinion on that. (laughs) So what is the origin of A1C? The A1C tests became available in the 1980s, though labs actually developed them in the late 1970s. The hemoglobin that measures A1C is actually a hemoglobin protein that shows up in higher rates in diabetics. There are multiple different types of hemoglobin cells. I think it goes from like A1A to A1F or something. So they're all lettered. And A1C is the one that is more common in type 1 diabetics. It makes up about 75 to 10.6% of our total hemoglobin, where it's only 4 to 6% in non-diabetics. And when it was first discovered, it was a huge deal because... Now there's a way to actually see what control looks like for type 1 diabetics, since you can't cheat on your A1C test, even if you cheat on your fasting blood sugar. Diabetesforecast.org wrote a really good in-depth article on the origin of A1C, which we'll link to in the show notes for those of you interested in the research. So why is A1C important? A1C is important because it gives you an overview of your control for the past three months. While it's not a perfect metric to go by all the time, 
thanks to the possibility of having a low A1C with bad time and range, it's still the go-to that doctors perform on diabetic patients to see how good they're doing. This is the test that I fear the most every three months, even though I'm still in high school. That's actually a good point. We shouldn't be fearing the A1C test since it's like any blood sugar. It's just a number, a point in time. That's true. And although I do know that, I still can't get it through my brain that it's just a te- like it's just a measurement to see where I'm at. Just like your height or your weight. It's just a measurement. Like I can't get it through my head that it's just a number. That's why I like recording them and like graphing them because each one shows me the overall trend over time, like over every year. Yeah. And so I can see the trend down. It's, it's kind of fun. November is Diabetes Awareness Month. And this episode is sponsored by NuGo Slim Protein Bars. NuGo specializes in low glycemic index ingredients and their bars come in seven different flavors. Raspberry truffle, crunchy peanut butter, toasted coconut, espresso, among others. These bars are coated with real dark chocolate. NuGo Slim Bars have 19 grams of carb with 6 grams of fiber, 3 grams of sugar, 17 to 19 grams of protein, and no artificial sweeteners, which is pretty impressive for a protein bar. They rank at 24 on the glycemic index, which is far below the threshold for low GI foods at 55. These bars affect my blood sugar differently than they might affect yours because I'm more carbohydrate sensitive. If I plan for it correctly, I can have about half a bar at a time and still stay in range. They taste pretty good, and they're a great option if you're on the go or just need to add some protein to your diet. To try NuGo Slim, text TYPE1 with the number 1, that's T-Y-P-E, numeral 1, to 28398 for 20% off your first order or to pick up a sample pack for $7 shipped. You can also visit trynugo.com. That's trynugo.com. Again, your 20% off discount code is TYPE1. Texted to 28398 or at trynugo.com. And now back to talking about time and range and A1C. So what is time and range? Time and range, not surprisingly, is exactly what it sounds. It's measured by how much time you spend in your range. What does time and range mean? The more time you spend in range, the better your blood sugar control is, meaning the better your A1C is going to be. So how is time and range measured? It's measured as the percentage of time your blood sugar readings stay within the range you or your doctor chooses. I choose to set my range between 83 and 140 mgdl. The default range on Dexcom is 70 to 180. And this seems to be the default for doctor's offices too. And I actually see my calculated time and range on my Dexcom Clarity app, which it, it automatically calculates. So that's a good way to, to go see your uh, time and range just you can do it for the day you're on for two days, seven days, 14 days, 30, and then 90, I think, on Dexcom Clarity. Oh, that's cool. I don't know about my pump. I have to look at it and figure it out because I know there's a certain way where you can look at your time and range over the last week, month, and day to see that, but I don't. I have to do a deep dive into that. Anyways, you can measure your time and range with blood glucose readings from a meter, though having a CGM makes this calculation automatic on your device, and it's also a lot less work and a lot more accurate. Some Bluetooth-enabled meters come paired with apps that calculate your time and range for you, actually. According to Diatribe, in studies and large real-world data sets, time and range is typically around 50 to 60% in the average person with diabetes. Additionally, a recent study put CGM on people without diabetes for 10 days, 
finding 97% time in range. And they call this a tight range, which is a 70 to 140. So my range is actually tighter than tight. And those glucose levels were averaged around 99 mgdl, and they showed very little variation. So that's kind of cool. They know what the average time and range is for a non-diabetic. Diatribe's article on time and range is an incredible resource, and you can find the link to that in the show notes as well. So the origin of time and range. The acceptance of this metric as a standard of care is actually a very, very recent development. And by recent, I mean it happened in like May of 2019. Adam Brown, who we interviewed in episode 55, credits a JDRF clinical trial from 2008 for putting CGM on the map, which ultimately led for a push to recognizing and using time and range, which led to the Beyond A1C movement, and then the formation of Diatribe, which, uh, where Adam worked for a bit. So why is time and range important? You can probably guess. It's important because it shows the variation in blood sugars. It lets you see the peaks and the valleys, the, those roller coasters we all hate. And the more roller coasters, the worse your time and range is, especially if those peaks and valleys go outside your high and your low lines. Time and range is also important because you can measure it at home. You don't have to wait for a blood sugar test from your doctor's office to see your time and range. Being able to see it real time also lets you make decisions about what you eat, how you exercise, and other effect and other factors that affect your numbers. And Diatribe has a really fantastic graphic that we'll post in the show notes with credit that shows how time and range breaks down for three different trend graphs on a CGM. It's kind of cool. So how do A1C and time and range work together? Ideally, you'll have a low A1C and a high time and range. Seeing both lets you understand the relationship between them and then make better treatment decisions for yourself on a day-to-day basis with time and range, and then kind of on a quarterly basis with A1C. The Diabetes Spotlight this week is on destigmatizing food choices. I think the most common question that type 1 diabetics face, actually probably all diabetics, is can you eat that? I've certainly gotten this question, sometimes from family members, sometimes from coworkers, sometimes from random strangers. It doesn't bother me as much anymore, but for those people who have kind of a tenuous relationship with food or with their diabetes, this question is evidence that diabetes of either type is stigmatized by our food choices. So I want to clarify, type 1 diabetics did not eat their way into this condition. Type 2 diabetes is preventable and it's reversible, but it has roots in genetics. It's not rooted in what you eat, though eating poorly can make it worse. Having to defend food choices can bring shame on people who are unprepared for the question or uncomfortable telling someone off for their tactlessness. You can listen to episode 65 on self-care where we crowdsourced tips from Facebook And I keep remembering that one woman who suggested making leaflets to hand out to people. So if someone asks you, can you eat that? Just hand them a leaflet saying, yes, I can. So I see this question of, can you eat that? I think it has two different underlying intentions. The first one could be judgment. And the second one could be genuine curiosity. So it could be one or or the other in my view, but there could be more. The problem is that I don't know the asker's real intention. It could be one or the other. It could be something else entirely. But when I don't know the intention, I might default to assuming that it's judgment. And honestly, I can see most diabetics defaulting to assuming they're being judged for what they're eating. So if you're actually curious and are genuinely interested in learning more about how different foods affect type 1 diabetes, try to preface your question and then pay attention to your tone. There's a really big difference between, can you eat that? And with a really judgy tone and asking, I'd like to know more about the food you eat with your type 1 diabetes. What do you eat? Like, how does it affect you? And be genuinely curious about it instead of judgy. And I will get off my soapbox now. 
But Diatribe has an article on this very topic, which we'll link to in the show notes. I would just like to add a little bit of input in here, just, just as a side note. Diabetics out here, it's rough. It's hard. We see all the social media saying, this is how you get skinny. This is how you lose weight. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. And we are held nowadays, I believe, to a higher standard because of social media and because we're comparing ourselves to other people and what other people look like. Just know that you are you and that nobody can change that, that you are an amazing person and that you work hard for your body and you actively have to be taking care of it. Just because you see something doesn't mean that that is actually what they're going through either. Some people have staged gym workout sessions or staged, I'm at the beach, look how pretty I am kind of sessions, which nothing against that, but just know that when people just see face value, they're not actually looking deep down and seeing how hard you're working. There's also the danger of assuming what somebody is eating is actually not good for them. So I have a whole bunch of low-carb chocolate in my cupboard. And if you didn't know any better, you would see me eating a little bar of chocolate and not realize that it's (laughs) low-carb. Yeah. Okay. So our audience question this week is... How are your A1Cs and your time and range stats? Do you need help improving them? Let us know in the comments. We can probably help you out. And that is it for this episode of This is Type 1. You can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com slash episode 66. That's the number 66. And if you have an idea for an upcoming episode, please leave us a comment or send an email. You can get straight to our podcast page by going to thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade. Maybe your time and range and A1C are great, but your mental state isn't. Diabetes adds what feels like hundreds of extra decisions on top of our day, and I can help you learn how to manage it. As your life coach, I'm dedicated to your success. Schedule a free 60-minute coaching consult at inspiredforward.com coaching. I'm on all social media as at inspiredforward, on DMP as at Colleen Mitchell, and our email is colleen at inspiredforward.com. And I'm on Instagram as at JJ underscore Crystal K-A-T. Please feel free to send me questions or comments you have about type 1 diabetes or about the show. And if you reach out through Instagram, please let me know that you're from the show and you're a listener. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends, your family, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts since that really helps other people find us. And if you leave a review with real words, then we will shout you out. Be sure to listen next week when we talk with guest Seth Helbling about diabetes and high-intensity exercise. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.